Well, hello there, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast, episode 320. I, of course, am Trevor, a.k.a. the Iron Fist. With me, as always, is Joe, the tech guy. Evening, all. And if you're, one, if you're watching the live stream and you're thinking, why is there only two white guys there? What happened to Shay? The answer is, well, good news and bad news. The bad news is Shay's not with us tonight. The good news is it's because she is uh, working in her profession as an airline hostess. She's currently somewhere in the sky, landing at 8 o'clock. And if she touches down, gets in the car, gets home and gets on a computer quick enough, she can join us remotely. So well, that's good news for Shay that she's back in the swing of things with her job. So, And we'll be able to organise organize ourselves a bit better in future, make sure we don't miss an episode with Shay. So anyway, it's just Joe and I tonight. And if you're in the chat room, please say hello. And oh, a bunch of different topics to talk about. Um, we're going to look at news and politics and sex and religion, everything that's happened in the last two weeks, try and figure out what's going on. Try not to cry too hard over the plight of the world. Going to look at corruption, Gladys, ICAC, horse race journalism, what's been going on with Peter Dutton, and of course the religious discrimination bill and maybe a bit of COVID at the end. Who knows what we'll get to, what rabbit holes we'll end up down. So, well, let's kick off and see where we end up. And look, I oh, first off, we had satanic drinks the other night. So Robin and I met with some of the local Satanists in Brisbane at a place in Newfarm, and that was that was okay. A few of us there. Some nice. The most interesting part was that some of you may have heard of Drew Pavlow or Pavlo or Pavlow. He's the guy who was having a fight with the University of Queensland over the influence of the Chinese Communist Party. And he's, anyway, his bodyguard, Dr. Bruno Stars, came along, who was supportive of our cause and also was telling us a bit about Drew and his party, the Democratic Alliance Party. So that was interesting. Bruno, if you are uh, watching or listening, thanks for dropping in the other night. That was good. I have to say, though, Drew's party, they've got a long way to go in terms of developing policies, I think. They're a bit of a one-trick pony in that they... They have 1,500 members? Well, they do. More than... Yes. So, dear listener, the rules change that having 500 members is not enough anymore. So, a number of smaller parties, Secular Party, Science Party, uh, I think... Oh, oh, Pirate Party. Pirate Party. They've all had to... Well, they're looking at amalgamating in order to get the numbers. Well, it's a coalition, yes. Yes, because they, they can't get 1,500 members. M- meanwhile, Drew, I think, has got well over that. I think he might have had 2,500 and plenty of donations as well. So he's got the numbers, remarkably, to create his own party. So, yeah. so it's a first step, but now they just need some policies because, well, it kind of started off where Bruno... You know, we say, well, what's this party about, Bruno? And he said, well, of course, everybody is against the Chinese Communist Party and its influence in Australia. And I said, well, just stop right there. Hang on a minute. Like, don't you think it's a bit overblown? So we started getting into a conversation and mm-hmm. um, about that, where I was really saying, look, if you're worrying about foreign influence, shouldn't you be more worried about America's influence on our culture and our systems? Anyway, he was very polite and uh, we had an interesting conversation. And, uh, yeah, so that was the satanic drinks in Brisbane. Okay, moving on to more current events that don't involve us. So I also had some friends over for a sort of social gathering and some of them sort of traditionally vote conservative. And honestly, dear listener, if you're thinking Morrison's lost, 
Think again, like the people who voted for him, in in my anecdotal experience of the conservatives that I met who previously voted for him, they they don't see that he's done a bad job. They think he's done okay on COVID. Well, that's what the two party preferreds were saying. Yes. And that Albanese hasn't done enough to warrant changing over and they actually still have a generally favourable impression of... Would they ever swing voters, though? I don't think so. I don't... I can't be sure, Mm -hmm. but not even a hint of shifting, really. So, you know, it's easy to get stuck in a bubble, I think, and be reading things and think, oh, surely everybody sees through this clown. But no, there's still lots of people still attached to him and... And just don't have an issue with... His theocracy? Yes. Or, you know, the one that came out in the last week, Joe, was about Gladys and ICAC. Mm. Like, to come out... Oh, let me jump to that one. So so they're angling for Gladys Berejiklian to take over as a candidate in the seat that they lost. Tony Rabbit seat, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Warringah or something like that, I think it's called. So, with Federal Cabinet Ministers still considering draft integrity laws, Mr Morrison told Parliament he would not meet demands from Labor about the federal body because doing so would create a kangaroo court like the New South Wales Commission. Quote, Those opposite want to support the sort of show which has seen the most shameful attacks on the former Premier of New South Wales, Gladys Berejiklian, he said. What was done to Gladys Berejiklian the people of New South Wales know, was an absolute disgrace. How long have the Liberals been in power? Federally? No, uh, no, no, in New South Wales. I don't know. She's been there a while. She's been there, yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. So she's had time to cripple the ICAG. Yes. So it, it's not like it was stacked by her. Oh, sorry, not, yes. it wasn't stacked by the opposition. Right. She's had time to get the old guard out and do whatever she needs to. Yes. And it's still, I'm not, it hasn't found anything against her yet as far as I know. No. But, it's, yeah, it, it should have investigated her. It sounds like there was collusion between her and her boyfriend, even if it was turning a blind eye. Correct. And all it's done is saying we need to investigate and they've yeah. questioned her over the money that was channelled to the electorate of her boyfriend and the nature of her relationship. Yeah, and and her saying, I wasn't in a relationship with him, and yet she was talking about how how they were in love. Yep. I mean, this is an allocation of public money. Was it done according to law? Was it done according to protocols? Like, this is what bodies do. And for our Prime Minister to say... It was just a kangaroo court. Surely he's in contempt. Well, I don't know if they've got contempt laws on a thing like that. So what he said, I'll just go on. I'm not going to allow that sort of process, which seeks to publicly humiliate people on matters that have nothing to do with the issues before such a commission, to see those powers abused and to seek to traduce the integrity of people like Gladys Berejiklian. The Australian people know that Gladys Berejiklian was done over by a bad process and an abuse. She resigned voluntarily. Hmm. She, she knew that it looked bad and yep. she decided to step down. Yep. Like it just, this is not normal, dear listener, for a prime minister. Well, to, to interfere in a criminal investigation. And to just declare that a, in a, you know, a corruption investigating commission is just a kangaroo court 
and completely dismiss what they've done. Where have we got to? Like, this is, this, well, this is just Trump mm-hmm. all over again. So the people, you know, my conservative friends who will still vote conservative, this just doesn't matter to them. It should. It should matter. But we've gone no, beyond so, this. So, so truth, I think, no longer matters. I don't know if it ever did. But I think there was much more concern about at least looking yes. to be correct. Yes. Integrity just, just doesn't matter anymore. It's so f- amazing. I mean, but, but I keep- Scott Morrison doesn't remember that he's ever lied in public. Yeah. I keep giving the example because this is what people say is the argument that comes back is, look, politicians have always been like this. It's always been the case. And- it's a matter of degree. Exactly. It's not so blatant. And they, they at least used to pretend that they were humiliated when they were caught. Yes. And we had situations, we had a minister who imported, when he came back from overseas, a Paddington bear and didn't declare it on his customs form. And he resigned from the ministry. The same with another minister who brought in a colour television and declared it as a black and white and paid less duty as a result. Uh, and that was and, the bottle of wine, I remember. Yeah, bottle Exactly. Like these things had some importance and mm. now just blown away. Like it just doesn't matter. So now we're looking at Gladys being parachuted into this with the full support of Morrison and the Liberals who have calculated that the public does not care and she's got a chance of winning. And It depends and, what her position on climate change is. Right. And, and I think there's a lot of LNP members, or sorry, Liberals, Mm. who voted last time on the basis that the the Liberal Party was beholden to the Nationals around climate change. Uh, And so they were willing to vote independent, and I think they will do again, Mm. if the Liberal Party is unwilling to change. Yeah, I don't know. So Um, Unless they're placated by the whole, we we might do things, we're thinking about possibly maybe doing something by 2050, Mm. but no guarantees. I mean, it'll be a very sad state of affairs if she is put forward. I mean, it's sad that they've actually said there's nothing wrong with her and here she is. And then if she actually gets put forward and then if she actually gets charged. So because as a federal politician, you can't, you can't have a criminal record. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Well, there's a discharged, an undischarged bankruptcy. And there were a few other things that buy you from being a politician, but I can't remember what they are. Yeah, I don't know. Don't know. Have to look it up. That'll come out, won't it? So there was a poll in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age last Thursday, it must have been, or maybe two weeks ago, which showed that many of the state's voters continue to have sympathy for Berejiklian. 54% of voters saying they still like and respect the former Premier. And... On a separate question, 43% agreed with the proposition that Mrs. Berejiklian should not have resigned based on what had emerged from 25% disagreed and 32 were neutral. So 43% she should, said she should not have resigned, 32% were neutral, only 25% said she should have. That was a resolved political monitor poll. Only 515 respondents, not the greatest of polls, but still frightening numbers. So this is not normal. This is uh, not good. Uh, if- well, I, I, yeah, I mean, the question is, did she perjure herself? Mm. Was she 
yeah, even if she was turning a blind eye, was she going, or did she actually actively conspire and funnel money that shouldn't have gone there? Well, I think just her own, you know, the recordings that they have are pretty damning. Yeah. And she wasn't able to provide any mitigating circumstance that, that, yeah. that seemed to make a better picture of what looked like a pretty ugly scenario. So, uh, yeah, we're in a bad state of our democracy when when people with such a dark cloud over them are being considered before being cleared for another role straight up. And our mm -hmm. Prime Minister says the whole process was a complete kangaroo farce and an abusive pro process. I mean... Yeah, I mean, that. Just, it, that's more worrying. Yeah. He, he's undermining the process. Yes. Yes. It's even more worrying than them selecting her, is, yeah. is the statements he made. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Oh, in the chat room, you guys are going off. So what have we got here? James is saying that the Liberals are a four-term government and the ICAC is underfunded. Right. There we go. So New South Wales four-term government. Robin says hello. Ross says the Liberal Party in New South Wales instigated ICAC and were quite happy with it when it was pursuing Labor members. Exactly right. And the fact that Morrison is singing her praises means the LNP have done some testing of the voters' opinions, which I assume were positive. Groan. Yeah. Honestly, it, it's just a really sad state of affairs with our democracy. Or should we be calling a calling it a kakistocracy? From the Greek word kakistos, meaning the worst, and kratos, meaning rule. So a kakistocracy essentially refers to a government by the least suitable or competent or even the worst citizens of a state. So in this article by Michael McKinley in the John Menendew blog, he says we're in some form of cacistocracy. We're no longer talking about just normal corruption. It's the inevitable consequence of political parties becoming so beholden to special interests with no connection to democracy that their immune systems are totally compromised. They have ceased to stand for anything except pure politics. That's the case. Morrison, you know, lots been coming out that other than religious freedom bill, he's, he's really got nothing on his agenda. No. The fact that they scheduled a handful of days of parliament for the next nine months meant they had nothing pressing that they wanted to do in terms of Well, they wanted change. to fob off any uh, climate change action. Yes. I think they've managed to do that. Right, yep. Because it's it's technology, not taxes. Yes. Yeah. That That's the strategy. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's lots they, of words and absolutely nothing happening. Yep. So, you know, they've got nothing on their agenda except bloody religion. So anyway, that's where we are with Morrison, Kangaroo Court, Gladys. And Kekistan. And, and yes, and Kekistocracy. So what's our media doing to help us in what's happening? Joe, dear listener, we're going to play something here. We're using a new system so that we can get the video come up on the on the live stream. So I'm a little bit worried that the volume is going to be a bit low in this next bit. So if you are listening for the next two minutes on the live stream, you might have to turn it up a little bit. So let's just play a bit of the one that had... The sales? Yes, that one, yep. ...in evidence here too. Well, horse race journalism is sort of a, a reusable model for how to do campaign coverage in which you focus on who's going to win rather than what the country needs to settle 
by electing a prime minister. And it's easy to do because you can kind of reuse it sort of like a Christmas tree every year. And it requires almost no knowledge either. And it kind of imagines the campaign as a sporting event, right? And everything that happens in the campaign can potentially affect the outcome. And so you can look at it as how is it going to affect the horse race? And every day you can ask who's ahead and what is their strategy? And I think this perspective appeals to political reporters because it kind of puts them on the inside, you know, looking at the campaign the way the operatives do. By the way, I'm told that you actually have a program here on Sunday morning called The Insiders. We do. Is that true? We do. And The Insiders are the journalists? That is right. That's remarkable. Mm. The nature of, basically what you've just described there is basically what modern, can, the, the, the day so horse race journalism, I like what he's saying there in the sense I think he's right. So much of what I see is punditry about how the parties are going and the point scoring, but nothing about the actual policies and whether they're good or bad. And a classic example to me on the 7.30 report, not Lee Sales, but who's the other lady who comes on with blonde hair, her name's just escaped me for the moment, was going out with the actor, Laura Tingle. So Laura Tingle gets a lot of positive sort of press where, from other journalists and mm-hmm. lefties who think Laura's fantastic. Wonderful. Yeah, And to me, it's a lot of horse race journalism a lot of the time and not really willing to get into the weeds on policy. So I remember with submarines when that sort of blew up, she really hadn't done any study of the submarine issue in the sense of what makes a good submarine for our purposes and what doesn't. She had no idea at all. She was like, oh, well, you know, of course, what's a good submarine? That's technical stuff. I'll leave up to other people. But here's the fight that's going on between people rather than addressing the policy itself. And just all the time, I think. The politicians going, he said, she said. Yeah. And who who levelled the best gotcha or whatever, but without really examining the, what, whether the nuts or not and it's bolts, good for Australia. Pros and cons. As opposed to whether it's good for a politician's career. Correct. Yeah. Is this just a good policy or a good idea? It just doesn't get discussed. No, I think it's a lot about you know, the the false balance. Mm. It's very much we can't be seen to be taking sides. Mm. So we'll report on what the, the politicians are doing yes. and we'll ignore the policies. Because there's a chance that in examining the policies, you might decide one of them is, is really good or bad, yeah. and, and that's a, good for one side of the one party and not so good for the other one. Yeah, yeah. So if, but, if you find out that you know ninety-seven um, percent of climate scientists yeah. believe that humans are causing climate change, yeah. and that sticking your head in the sand and pretending that it doesn't exist is probably bad for the country, you may decide that one political party is better than another. Yeah. So, yeah, we just don't get enough discussion on the, the nuts and bolts of policy and whether they're a good idea or not. One, so, you know, the sources I'm really enjoying at the moment, I still enjoy John Menendez's blog for different things that does get into the weeds on policy. And mm-hmm. I'm also really enjoying Crikey. So if you're thinking of expanding your news sources, dear listener, then give Crikey a go. They're doing some good stuff, and they've done a lot of work on... Religious freedom? Yes, and the goings-on with Hillsong and other 
mm. backroom people with who are involved in dominionism essentially. So so quite liking Crikey and highly recommend that you take up a subscription if you've got a bit of spare cash for a Crikey subscription. They're doing some good stuff. The rest of them are doing nothing, I think. And and honestly, as you know, do this not I look at all the Murdoch papers, Curia Mail, the Australian Big and, fan. And each day I have to say the Curia Mail doesn't have that much on China necessarily. And then I open up the app for the Australian and I just, before I even start, I go, I wonder how they've managed to weave anti-China stories into this paper today. And sure enough, there's three, four, six of them, often on the front page with some anti-China bent and outrage. And it's mind-boggling how anti-China the Australian is and how it dominates that, not newspaper, that newsletter for the... Mm. Liberal Party. For the IPA. Yes, that's it, yeah. Yeah, I I have the Apple News app on my phone, which really is probably where I see a lot of headlines. Uh, And if it's bagging Donald Trump, it comes from Vanity Fair. Right. If it's bagging Palaszczuk, Mm. it's the Courier Mail. Right, yes. Yeah, you can can almost just read the headlines and tell which, which, which news source it comes from. Yes. I'm a bit the same with spectator authors now. Right. Um, because I've been I've been hitting the unsubscribe button on spectator emails for the last week and these things still keep appearing, but but I can I can now pick a Ramesh the Cool article just by the first line. I can say, ah, that looks like Ramesh, and sure enough it's him. And spiked I can pick a Brendan O'Neill one pretty well and a Douglas Murray pops out at me. They've just got a certain style and outrage from the first line. So mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, our our media is failing us. ABC in particular, who should be helping us, where there is some expectation, they are not getting into the weeds. They're just doing the what do we call it? The horse race journalism, I reckon, a lot of the time. Mm. Okay. So yeah, James says, can you imagine the pile pile from the IPA, the CIS, and the ilk if the ABC started? Evaluating the policy. Well, that's that's probably true, and that's why they're probably scared, James. So, mind you, so IPA Institute of Public Affairs, CIS Centre for Independent Studies. I saw oh, Commonwealth of in- Independent States. No, Centre for Independent Studies, another right wing group. Right. I saw the Rationalists reproducing one of their articles. It was about public housing, and okay. the article was saying how the government shouldn't be in public housing because it's it's not a good investment. That was shared on, I think, the Free Thinkers Group, and I right. found an article that was arguing back in the eighties. Maggie had a big, big policy about selling off mm. the UK social housing stock. Yeah, how'd that go? Some people got very, very rich because yeah. they bought cheap yeah. houses in the middle of London, and now they have a shortage of housing stock. Yeah. But the whole premise of the article was that the government shouldn't be in it because public housing is not a good investment. It's not supposed to be a good investment. It's supposed to be a service. It was like, why is the rationalist sharing this? No, no government service is supposed to be a good investment. Right. They're not, yeah. they're not supposed to run a profit. No, that's right. And so I was like, why is the rationalist running this? And they also ran this article, which I'm going to talk about later, if we get to it, by Carrick. Now, what was his name? Carrick Ryan, I think. They used to. Yeah. They used to have a section, and I don't mm. know. Maybe it was in that section mm. of policies that we disagree with. But here it is, right for interest. Okay, 
then I'd like them to say that if that's if they've got it there as on, on the as, daily newspaper. It was right. down the bottom. There was always a section of right things to be aware of. Right. Okay. Because I sort of took it as they thought it was a good idea. Possibly. Anyway, what's happened? Social media stuff. So. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram have been given an ultimatum. Either reveal the contact information for users posting abusive content or pay a hefty defamation payout under trailblazing proposed legislation taking on the social media titans. New changes would force social media companies to provide the phone number or email address of trolls if a defamation litigant wants it. Opposition leader Anthony Albanese asked... How are we supposed to police a global industry? Like, what if someone registers an overseas ISP so they look like they're in Australia? So It's easy done. Yes. So for this to work, the Australian government is trying to tell the social media giants that every user in the world, you're going to have to take their contact mm-hmm. details and provide them to us if we want it. Like, that's just not going to work. They're going to tell... Australian government to go jump. The other thing about it is that this isn't about protecting small everyday Australians no. because they don't have the money to pay for a defamation case. This is just enabling uh, people who have already got plenty of power and money to shut down dissent amongst the ranks. So, yes, certain litigious multimillionaires and politicians. Yes, indeed. So, it's, it's promoted as a means of keeping the social media free of trolls, but it's actually a means of suppressing dissent for the rich and powerful who can afford to do it. It just makes it easier for their lawyers to find the defendant. I mean, the classic case, because the UK is known as being a bad place to defend against a libel right. accusation, Yes, uh, was Simon Singh versus the UK Chiropractic Association, whatever they're formal title is, I can't remember. Right. Um, he'd written an article in the newspaper saying that chiropractic was quackery. Right. And they took him to court over it. The quacks took him to court. The quacks took him to court. <laughs> and he crowdfunded a defence, a legal defence, and it was mm. expensive. Mm. It was not cheap. And he finally won. Right. He, he basically proved in a court of law that there was no scientific evidence behind their claims right and i don't i probably won damages but you know there's no way he got back what he spent no but that was a big big push for changing the uk libel laws right and he also i think set up a a defense fund for similar scientists to be able to speak publicly about Mm. pseudoscience right and to be defended against libel charges yes yep yep it was a pretty brave effort by the quacks to take him on, I would have thought. Well, I think they thought that they had the the financial might yep. to shut him up with the, the, the fear of a lawsuit. Yeah, we'll never get to court. Yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll just beat him to death. See, in yeah. the States they've got anti-slap mm. or slap provisions, mm. which is the strategic lawsuit against something, which basically says if you've made a claim that uh, can be proven... And they try to sue you for libel, effectively, you're liable for the costs. Oh, okay. But they've also got a law in America where if you're a public mm-hmm. figure, then pretty much... It's open slather? Yeah. And public figures are uh, really have to have a thick skin, essentially. It's quite different to here. 
Right. And so, yep, different laws. And so hard to imagine that one being uh, actually able to be implemented. But in any event, if it is, it's not going to help the little guys. It's just going to help the already powerful crush dissent. So that's that. So in other words, set your sock puppet accounts up now. Right. Whilst it's easy. Yeah, okay. And then use them to defame when <laughs> when the powers come. <laughs> so you've got a pre-existing one there. So mm. Speaking of defamation, Peter Dutton won his defamation case against refugee advocate Shane Bazzi. Poor hard-working man that he is. Mm. Peter Dutton, that is. Yes. Yeah. So Bazzi had tweeted a link to a Guardian Australia article reporting Dutton's claims that some female refugees on Nauru were making false rape allegations to try to get to Australia. And Bazzi added the comment, Peter Dutton is a rape apologist. So the judge found that the meaning that readers would have taken from the tweet was that Dutton is a person who excuses rape. And Dutton won $35,000 for that. It's just really, is it really? You know, sometimes it's okay to say, okay, that is defamatory, but in the circumstances, uh, $1. The, the amounts are crazy. It's, it's really worth $35,000. I'm, I'm surprised that given his comments on certain victims of rape, right, that it wasn't found truthful. Well, Bazzi's defence was honest opinion. To succeed, the opinion must be based on true facts, which are either stated or notorious. And no, it's not notorious and it hasn't been stated. So he lost. So but He was accusing these women of making up being raped. Yes. And uh, and were they found to have been making that up? Well, it was the words Peter Dutton is a rape apologist sort of go beyond that. So not, right, just, okay. not just these women, oh, but, but um, rape generally that in that was going too far. So but in the context surely Peter everything. Dutton's comments were defamatory against mm. the refugees. Well, up to them to Well, up to them to sue him. Oh exactly. guess what? They don't have the money. So it's too hard. Yeah. Exactly. At least they know his phone number and email address. They won't well, be relying on you laws to do it. So, so, so yes, things are. That's defamatory, clearly. You just have to wonder, can the scheme be changed so that you say, yes, but it's not worth $35,000. A figure like Dutton in that situation, seriously, it's not worth it. So, so really what we've got now is the government saying, well, this trolling, this insulting of people, these defamatory comments, that's evil on social media. Of course, doing that's perfectly fine if you're stating a religious belief. Mm. Like this is all happening at the same time. On the one hand, it's a terrible thing to do uh, on social media. On the other hand, well, if it's a religious belief, go. I'm fairly sure that satanic practices are... About the sanctity of the other, right? The the inviolability of one one's own person, and and therefore in those grounds, I'm, I'm fairly sure it would be a religious belief that Dutton was a rape apologist. No, I don't think that would be the case, Joe. And he's really you're you're skating on thin ice here, Joe. It would it would not be if somebody were to say such a thing. Yes, I don't think they could say that as part of a religious belief. No, no. I don't think there's a religion that has that specifically in mind as part of its doctrine. So, Okay, what else we got from that? Oh, and the other thing is, you know, the secrecy of trolls. We can't have people being secret. No, no. No, unless, of course, they're donating millions of dollars to a former Attorney General for 
is yeah. In which case, we, th- there's nothing to investigate. That's right. Yeah, we'll keep that secret. Yeah, and you know, more hypocrisy. A woman crosses the floor in the Senate over the ICAC Senate House of Reps. Can't remember, but essentially over the whether to debate the federal ICAC. And one of the female liberal politicians crossed the floor and basically Frydenberg hauled her into Morrison's office and they counselled her. Meanwhile, five guys crossed the floor to support Pauline Hanson's vaccine mandate laws and they weren't hauled in. You saw the Jackie Lambie video? I think we talked, did we talk about her two weeks ago or not? Possibly. She was very good. Like... A bit over the shop, but the emotion was good. It was plain speaking. It was genuine. Mm. Yes, it's what you don't hear. So, And she's declared that the religious discrimination bill is dead in the water. She's not going to support it. So good. that's off to a Senate inquiry. We'll talk about that bill in a moment, but I still want to have a bit of a go at Peter Dutton before moving on. So, you know, he has been beating the drums of, of war with China. Well, he's and, got an election to win. Yes, and really, you can tell now that the campaign is going to be on that the Liberal, Conservatives claim to be the better economic managers and they're going to keep us safe in a security sense from China. And so he's beating the drum. And he can sense that Morrison's in trouble and he's positioning himself as... The natural leader. Correct, yep. And but, the allegations were that he was behind the last coup. Yes, that Morrison... Got the inside run and beat him to it, yes. Because he had a more fanatical support group of Christians who just worked feverishly, yep. unrelenting. Yeah. Of course, dear listener, right now I'm guilty of horse race journalism, but hey, we'll, we'll do it anyway. But so, so Dutton is saying, let's not forget the 1930s, you know, essentially where there were people saying nothing to worry about with Hitler. And he's saying, you know, the same can be said of people who are saying nothing to be worried about with China. And I just want to make the point that if he really thinks that's the case, that China is going to build up this military that's going to end up attacking us and taking us over, why are we still selling them iron ore? And coal. Yeah. Jobs and growth. Yeah. Like if you honestly thought that China was the threat that you think you say it is, then you shouldn't be supplying them with the metal that they're going to use to build their ships and their missiles that's going to come raining down on us. Like, and the yeah. coal to produce the power to yeah. forge that metal. So it was back before the Second World War that uh, pig iron Bob Menzies got his nickname because the wharfies said, why are we shipping this pig iron to Japan? Things are hotting up here. Mm-hmm. This doesn't make sense. They had to go on strike to stop the iron being exported over to Japan because they... Could see the writing on the wall. So, you know, Dutton, why aren't you, you know, reducing or cancelling our iron ore sales to China if you're so convinced that they're going to be attacking us in the foreseeable future or anybody else for that matter if you truly think that they're our enemy and they're going to be um, attacking us soon. So let's Tom the Warehouse guy. Full BC Radio has some good com- moments, but every now and then there are comments about China and he, okay, so Full BC Radio is selecting people on the basis of an anti-China threat, according to Tom the Warehouse Guy. Haven't they always been right-wing? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay, sabre-rattling, yes, that's what's going on. So the other thing to remember, just with the hypocrisy of these people, so they've got a 
credibility problem. Morrison and Dutton were senior members of the Abbott and Turnbull governments when they signed a free trade deal with China and welcomed Xi Jinping to Australia. And they then sought to enforce an extradition treaty between Australia and China in 2017. This is only four years ago that these guys wanted were more to extradite than happy. people to China. Indeed. Mm. It's just a few years later. So this article says this is from March 2017. Not that long, four years and a bit, four and a half years. The coalition's decision to pull the treaty this morning came suddenly. Ms. Julie Bishop had been defending the treaty just minutes before heading into a meeting of the coalition leadership team where its fate was decided. Quote, this is Mrs. Bishop. Ms. Bishop, this is about our national interest. This is about serving our interests in not being a haven for criminals around the world who would seek to escape justice by being in Australia. She's advocating for the Chinese-Australia extradition treaty. Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce also furiously denounced Labor's decision to vote with the cross-branch and block the Australia-China extradition treaty. Barnaby Joyce called it crazy to block the treaty. Quote, Surely there's a trade minister or an attorney general or whatever who understands the ramifications, that if the Labor Party participates in this, they show they've really evolved not into an alternate party, but into some sort of sensational band of rubbish. Mr Joyce said, this is what they were saying only four years ago. Uh, yeah, well, you know, of course the Labor Party would be blocking the uh, supply of goods to a communist state. Yes. The hypocrisy of these people. And, and now, just in terms of his beating the drums over China from a Guardian article, Australia's Defence Minister has ramped up his pre-election warnings about the threat posed by China, declaring Beijing wants countries to be tributary states and is building up its military at a scale that is unlikely to be peaceful. Dutton said on Friday, dark clouds were forming in the regions uh, and countries would be foolish to repeat the mistakes of the 1930s. He said it was a time of great uncertainty and that Australians can be certain that the Morrison government will act to keep them safe. Does the Chinese government wish to occupy other countries? Not in my judgment, Dutton said, but they do see us as tributary states that surrender sovereignty and abandonment of any adherence to the international rule of law is what our country has fought against since Federation. He says, if Australia were a weak and unreliable and untrustworthy friend to its top security ally, USA, then it could not count on US support in the future, an outcome that would be disastrous. And he also Because we've counted on their support so many times in the past. Yes, and he also says that he believes China has no right to reclaim Taiwan, and if the US committed forces to defend the embattled island, it would be inconceivable that Australia, as an alliance partner, would not join in that military action. So if America decides to defend Taiwan, inconceivable that we wouldn't join them. There's a statement by Paul Keating responding to all of that and basically um, making the point that the US is actually having discussions with China and trying to come to some workable... The, the, the USA is not as hawkish as Australia is. So 
I'm not um, glad they've changed president, no. Yeah. So, so Peter Dutton ignored and went out of his way to ignore attempts by President Biden in his recent meeting with Xi Jinping to reach some sort of understanding or detente in the relationship between the USA and China. So, so basically, Biden is trying to reach some sort of more less toxic, less heated relationship, mind you, selling them the stuff that we can't sell anymore. And, and Australia's being more hawkish than the US is essentially Keating's arguments and basically declaring him to be a dangerous person, Keating declaring Dutton to be dangerous. So, look, this is not just Paul Keating. It's not just me. It's you know, When you read the John Menagy blog in particular, the number of different former ambassadors, former heads of department, really well-credentialed people who have been ambassadors, deputy ambassadors, have spent enormous amount of time in China, overseas in Asia. Really so much sort of ex-personnel from our diplomatic corps write articles in the John Menadu blog basically saying the same thing. This is crazy to be stirring up this, this hornet's nest with China in the way that we are, and it's got to stop. So it's... The people beating the drum are these goddamn stupid journalists in The Australian, the likes of Greg Sheridan, and our Defence Minister. <laughs> yeah, it's like the seventh year in the playground, yeah. picking on the year 11 kid yeah. just to look tough in front of his mates. Yeah, probably he's dragging the rest of us in. Well, exactly. Yeah. So I was listening to something where uh, Noam Chomsky was talking about it, and here's how he described it. He said, the US government sees the world in much the same way as the head of an organised crime syndicate views a turf war. The threat of China is China's existence. It exists as a major power that the United States cannot push around, cannot intimidate, and does not follow US orders. That is intolerable. Any mafia don can explain that. I mean, dear listener, that is a good essence of what's happening, is it's a big important corner of the world that is getting bigger and more important and the US cannot tell them what to do and it just drives them crazy as an empire and essentially what it comes down to is they can't access the Chinese market in the way that they want to so they're kept out on purpose mm -hmm. other countries have all capitulated to US investment particularly through the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. As soon as they got into any trouble and they got a loan from the IMF, the idea was, well, you have to open up your economy and allow foreign investment. And that's, that gave the Americans entry into all sorts of Asian countries, Latin America, etc. And China never signed up for it. China never agreed to it, didn't take it. And so they basically kept them out. And it's the last area of exploitation on the planet. And the Americans are just licking their chops, wanting to get in there. And it infuriates them that they can't. So, oh, Shay's in the chat room. So I just uh, saw that. Yeah. So, so I think that's a good way of looking at it. It's a turf war. And if you're running an organized crime syndicate, you just can't have dissidents floating around. It's not good for business. 
Any mafia don can explain that. Has always been the case. America has been happy to prop up dictatorships as long as they toed the line. Yes. Yeah. That was the key requirement. And, and that's what a lot of this is about. And, you know, like they're not perfect, for goodness sake. They've got, you know, issues of all sorts of things. But in the scheme of things, in comparison to the other group that we're hitching our wagon to, they've got a long way to go before they are as dangerous as the United States. Anyway, one other thing about Peter Dutton before I leave him was, so we had all this discussion about Morrison and Macron and what did Morrison tell Macron about dumping the subs and did he know or did he not know? And Dutton says, Mr Dutton also defended the timing and manner of the cancellation of the submarine contract. He said to tell the French earlier would have jeopardised the AUKUS partnership. Quote, this is a quote from Dutton. If you had have informed the French earlier and they have made that public and not respected the advice that we have given them, the Americans probably would have pulled out of the deal with a violent, with a violent reaction from the French. So he's essentially saying, we didn't tell the French that we were pulling out of the sub-deal until AUKUS was announced because maybe the French would have bitched and whinged so much that AUKUS might not have happened. That's confirming the French didn't know. Mm-hmm. So when Morrison says they did, he's a liar. No. Yeah. Morrison's never lied. Yeah. So. Not that he recalls anyway. Yeah. Again, quoting Dutton here, the US, the UK and Australia had a group of high-level officials working essentially around the clock on this deal. It was choreographed to the minute in terms of when people would be notified by whom and the sequencing was agreed by the three countries. So that's the important point to make. There were no surprise arrangements between the three partners. So Biden saying, oh, I thought they already knew. Dutton saying, bullshit. We all agreed they wouldn't know until we announced August. Mm -hmm. The other thing, of course, just on subs, is that one of the key things that our Defence Department has said about getting subs is that we've got to have the latest in terms of technology, technology mm-hmm. but we don't want any hold-ups that might occur through technology that's so new that it's untested. So we essentially want the, the latest spot. technology that has already been produced. We want the Goldilocks well, technology. Well, well, no, we want the latest technology that has already been manufactured and produced. Mm-hmm. What's the newest car not on the drawing board, or newest sub not on the drawing board, but is actually floating out on an ocean somewhere? So we can say that's what we're going to get. There's no surprises, but it's the latest at this point in time. And guess what? The UK and the US have essentially shelved and are not producing anything of their current fleet. Their plans for subs all involve brand new designs. So the only group in the world who is producing a sub which is of the latest technology... Are the French. Correct. So the very thing that we want from the submarine, the only supplier at the moment would be the French. Other things about it, of course, that, let me see here, yeah, just to re-emphasise that, no, you understood what I just said there. The problem with the American 
new platforms that they're going to be even bigger. Mm-hmm. So the Virginia class has a crew of 135, which is 80 more than our current Corrins class submarine. That we can't get enough crew for at the moment. And the British version has 98. So would we be able to populate these very large submarines? Even the British, which with much bigger population than Australia, have difficulty recruiting and retaining crews for their submarines. So Yeah, the UK's got three times the population of Australia. Yeah. So the French design is not only a relatively recent design that's actually being built, but it only needs a crew of 60, five more than the current Collins class. At some point, a future leader is going to have to go back to the French if we still want subs and go, any chance we can strike a deal? I was just wondering whether the nuclear would make a difference, but no, the French subs are actually nuclear. Right, yes. We just chose not to have the nuclear. Yes. For an additional cost. Yeah. So their, their form of a nuclear power is a slightly lower grade, so you have to replace it every 10 years, but you pop it in and out, and you've got to maintain these things and put them in a dry yeah, dock anyway. The, the, the problem was mm. after the French, mm. the perfidious French, mm. left NATO, we don't trust them with our secret squirrel stuff now. Yeah, well, but the point was we had a deal with them. With their current, the deal that got canned. Oh, no, no, but uh, that wasn't their electronics, was it? It was their hardware. But they had agreed, the US had agreed, we'll help you put your put the US weapons in these French-made subs. Yeah, yeah, because they were going to be diesel and therefore power, uh, maintained by Australia. Yeah, right. Well, they still had to provide a lot of information to the French oh, yeah, yeah. about their weapon systems so that they could be slotted in. So... What? Just a shamozzle. Don't ask Laura Tingle any of this because she doesn't know. So, okay. Religious discrimination bill. Where are we at? Shay, did you have a good flight? <laughs> She's in her pyjamas, so she'll just participate via chat if that's okay. Good on you, Shay. Right. Religious what does she dis- think I wear when I turn yeah. up? Okay. Religious discrimination bill, third draft. What does it, why does it matter? Where are we heading in Australia? And let's do a little diversion to Roe v. Wade in the United States. Tom, the warehouse guy, if you're still in the chat room, I'd be interested to know if you're up to speed on Roe v. Wade, which... I I read an article that came out after she died Mm. because she was uh, a lesbian who... That's why it surprises me this was her third child, but she was hailed by uh, Christian pro-lifers a few years after Roe v. Wade was won. Mm that she changed her mind and she'd become a born-again Christian yes. and that she was, you know, she uh, changed her sexuality and she thought this was a horrible thing and that abortion was wrong. And in her later life, she actually said, no, she was paid huge amounts of money and that's the only reason she did it was because she was getting such large amounts of money that she was basically selling her integrity. Ah, okay. So I'd heard that she had flipped and had gone to the Christian side. Yeah. But I hadn't heard that so she on, had... So on her deathbed, she oh, basically... Uh, deathbed confession. Confessed right. uh, getting huge sums of money. Right. Which basically meant that she could live a life of Riley. Right. She lived yeah. a quite nice life, thanks to the fundies who were quite happy to, fund, uh, to, to pay her way. Right. Okay. So anyway, the decision involved the case of Norma McCorvey, known in her lawsuit under the pseudonym of Jane Rowe, like 
John Doe, who in 1969 became pregnant with her third child, and she wanted an abortion, but she lived in Texas, where abortion was illegal, except when necessary to save the mother's life. So a lawsuit was filed alleging that the Texas abortion laws were unconstitutional. So... And the interesting thing is mm. that it was seen by the, the, the Protestants mm. as being a purely Catholic problem. Yes. The Protestants supported a woman's right to choose mm. until the, major, the, the moral majority decided that this was a wedge issue. Correct. It was not a problem for Christians in general, non-Catholics, yes. until they saw it as a wedge issue for politics. Basically. Yep. And that was in the 70s, I believe. Yep, indeed. Anyway, they were right on that score. It's a wedge issue. We've made it one. Um, so, so in 1973 then, the Supreme Court issued a 7-2 to decision ruling that the, there was a right to privacy that protected a pregnant woman's right to choose whether or not to have an abortion. And it ruled that this right is not absolute and it's got to be balanced against the government's interests in protecting women's health and protecting prenatal life. So they created a balancing test and basically looked at the three trimesters of pregnancy and said during the first trimester, governments could not prohibit abortions at all. During the second trimester, governments could require reasonable health regulations. And during the third trimester, abortions could be prohibited entirely so long as the laws contained exemptions for when it was necessary for the life or health of the mother. So they had this sort of trimester thing, but basically Roe v. Wade was, you know, it didn't matter what the state laws were, you could get an abortion in America based on this right to privacy found by the Supreme Court. Now, the interesting thing is, dear listener, I'm mentioning all this because there's just been a recent case heard before the Supreme Court and essentially... Based on what the judges were saying, it looks like Roe v. Wade's going to be overturned at some stage in the next six months when they come out with a decision, and there'll be lots of states in America where abortion will become illegal as a result. So a little bit of the history is interesting here. So the 14th Amendment, so they found this right to privacy. They said, oh, women have a right to privacy. It's in the Constitution. And they said it's in the 14th Amendment, Section 1, which reads... All persons born or naturalised in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. I don't see anything about privacy in that, like... It really does look like they've pulled that one out of their bottoms. Yeah, and they applied it to, I believe it was gay rights, saying that the government didn't have a right to interfere in a couple's private mm. life. So they've really, I think, um, drawn a long bow to try and find this right to privacy out of that 14th Amendment, which on the I face of it just says, we're all citizens, we're all going to be treated equally, and we all get due process under the law. So, so a subsequent case of Planned Parenthood versus Casey said 
Uh, Roe versus Wade, still okay, except rather than trimesters, we're going to look at whether the um, fetus is viable. And essentially, you could get an abortion up until the point when the fetus becomes viable to live on its own without requiring being inside the mother. So, so that was the Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey and the American law that's been in place up until now. And, of course, with Trump coming in, managing to get more Supreme Court appointments, the calibre and type of person who has come in, Brett Kavanaugh and, um, and others. ACB. Amy Coney Barrett. Very hard line. Well, she's a Catholic, isn't mm, she? Yes, with at least five of her children. own kids yeah. and two adopted or something like that. Yep. Plucked out of obscurity in academia and popped into the mm-hmm. Supreme Court. And so let me just find this. Oh, actually, this is interesting. So just in the Roe v. Wade case, the defence, so this is the text, the attorney for the Texas law, he, in his opening argument, made what was later described as the worst joke in legal history. Yes. So this is at the start of Roe v. Wade, and he said, appearing against two female lawyers, Floyd began, Mr Chief Justice, and may it please the court, it's an old joke, but when a man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they are going to have the last word. He was met with stony silence. Holy smokes, what a bad thing to say. As your opening address. There we go. Anyway, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who died in recent years and lauded for her work as a great jurist, she actually said Roe v. Wade has a problem. She didn't like this privacy. No, I've heard lots of arguments against it. Yes, she said that they should have relied on equality provisions in it, in that, in that section. Remember, it said something like, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So she said you could have relied on the equal protection provision rather than this made-up privacy idea. And that would have achieved the same result and it would have been a, a more convincing argument. So... What's happened in this case is that in in this current challenge to it, the the argument from people wanting to maintain the right to abortion has been basically the court made this decision in Roe versus Wade and really the law of stare decisis is that you don't change an old precedent just because it's wrong. You mm-hmm. actually have to have other reasons, like before you change an old precedent and, and basically saying it didn't meet this, the, the criteria. For, for, a new, for a new For a new reason. decision, yeah. yes. So, and Brett Kavanagh made an interesting observation. He said, look, if the Constitution is silent about this, then it's just up to the states as to, and they can decide what law will apply in each state and... The way you were saying it was, in my view, looking at this constitution, it does it's silent about abortion law and it's really up to the states to make their law about it. Because federal laws, unlike in Australia, mm-hmm. have to be explicitly devolved from the states to the federal government, don't they? Well, same here in Australia. So our constitution yep. says 
we basically, the colonies, the mm-hmm. states who started and were there first, said, oh, we need to create a federal Commonwealth system. Mm-hmm. We'll essentially retain all of the lawmaking capacity that we currently have except for the specific bits that we allocate right. yep. to the federal government, e.g. creating a defence force, printing money, entering into foreign agreements, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Things like education was not in it. So each state retains control over education. One of the things that was handed over to the federal government was laws in relation to corporations. So that's why the federal government can make a lot of laws because anything to do with a corporation, they can make a law. So that sort of gives them uh, quite a lot of power. We'll talk about that a little bit later in this religious discrimination bill and the potential challenge to it. So, Yeah, it was just whether hmm. the Americans could create a federal law yeah. that allowed abortion. They'd have to... So no, so they, the they, don't have, they don't have the, the law. Power. They don't have the power in their yeah, constitution okay. is essentially what Kavanaugh is saying. Yeah, okay. Whereas Roe v. Wade said... So they, unless it's pro- in the constitution... Yes, that you have a right to whatever, privacy, yes. equality, whatever, Correct. that would be imposed upon the states from a federal... Correct. The federal government itself can't create a law Correct. that overrides the states. Correct, yep. So, and our constitution works the same way. Right. Unless you can find a power in the constitution mm-hmm. that gives the federal government ability to make a law, then they can't make it. So, where? well, while we're on that topic then, so with the religious discrimination bill, there's potential challenges to that because there's nothing in the Constitution that says the federal government shall have power to make laws in relation to religion. No. Right? It's not one of the categories that was handed over. Other than Section 116. So, yeah, and that wasn't a... That was about supposedly the separation of church and state. But only for the federal government. Yes. So... So, so in our constitution, there isn't a law that says the federal government can pass laws in relation to religion. Mm-hmm. So they have to scamper through the constitution and try and find something for their power to do stuff. And what's happened with, in our laws is that there's a federal government has the power to make um, laws in relation to international treaties. Right, and they're claiming it's under the UN. So if you make a treaty to deal with human rights, mm-hmm. then arguably you could pass a, a, a law, law that fulfills that treaty. That fulfills that treaty. Yeah. So you could pass an anti-discrimination law because you've signed up to mm-hmm. a treaty for human rights and anti-discrimination. Essentially... It's a great way of expanding the power of the federal government. If you really want to have power over something, sign a treaty with somebody about it and you'll get power. But the interesting thing is that the human rights agreements... Are very strict in their limitations as to the freedom of religion. Correct. They say that specifically you can't interfere in other persons' freedoms through enforcing religious freedom. So arguably the power of the Commonwealth doesn't extend to some of the um, 
more militant attacking yes. powers that they're giving religions under this religious discrimination bill because it's not part of an international human rights Yeah, I mean, law. The, the, the international law says, mm. or sorry, the treaty says, except where it would interfere with the rights of somebody else. Yes, indeed. So you've got the ability to, I think the international covenant says, you have the right to worship mm-hmm. uh, any religion you want, but your ability to manifest that religion is subject to other rights yes. that people have. So that will be interesting if the federal government doesn't look like they are going to pass this religious discrimination bill, but if they did, then... I don't think they, they want be, to. Well, Morrison wants to, but he's afraid of losing. He, he's afraid I, of other count. I, I think... Oh, well, that's exactly it. I think yeah. it's very much a... Hey, religious nut jobs, vote for me. Yes. Because, you know, I'll get this done. But he doesn't actually want to do it because he's worried that it will lose him votes. Yes. And he's worried about an embarrassing loss yes. on the floor that he and the crazy thing is the hardline right wingers uh, don't care. They want to force it. Yeah, indeed. So so anyway, just wanted to mention Roe v. Wade, because it has been this case and essentially America is really heading towards a situation where The Handmaid's Tale is becoming more fact than fiction every day. And if you think I'm joking about that, then have a listen to a Republican representative, Madison Cawthorn, as he gives his speech in relation to this issue of Roe v. Wade. We'll play that now. Yeah. (laughs) Madam Speaker... Imagine you've just walked out of this chamber, and outside is a gorgeous sunset. You have a Polaroid camera, and you snap a beautiful picture, and the great photo pins out the front. You hold it and shake it, waiting for the picture to appear. But suddenly, someone walks by and snatches your photo, ripping it to shreds. You're stunned. You cry, why did you destroy my, fo- my picture? The person replies, oh, it wasn't a picture. It wasn't fully developed yet. All of us in this room realize how asinine that reasoning is. That photo was transforming into a beautiful image. This illustration by Seth Gruber is simple, but it's what our nation has done to the most precious image of all, the image of God. Madam Speaker, a silent genocide has slipped beneath the conscience of America. Precious works of our Creator formed and set apart meet death before they breathe life. Eternal souls woven into earthen vessels, sanctified by Almighty God and endowed with the miracle of life, are denied their birth by a nation that was born in freedom. God's breath of life blown away by the breath of man. This cruel and fallen world may seem too filthy for their very presence, but these precious temples are crafted in the image of God himself. One day, perhaps when science darkens the soul of the left, our nation will repent. But until then, the carnage of this unconscionable deed will stain the fabric of our nation. I hope that the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. I hope that we stop the the genocide of abortion in this country. With that, I yield back. Give us 10 years and we'll have our own Madison Cawthorn. I wonder if he feels the same way about the genocide that God does. Because my understanding is for every one live birth, there's 99 miscarriages. That's a technicality that Madison doesn't want to hear. <laughs> but honestly, give us 10 years and we'll have our own Madison Cawthorn. Mm. 
Mm. And I'm going to explain why in a moment. But it already this, – this is where we're at at the moment. We don't have a Madison Cawthorn yet. But They're not when, emboldened yet. Yeah, not as open as that. But just give us 10 years and we'll have one. So at the moment what we've got is uh, – Coalition MPs have urged Scott Morrison to increase funding to the government's school chaplaincy program to help address concerns that activism against global heating is causing mental health problems for Australian citizens, children. In the Coalition party room on Tuesday, Liberal MP Andrew Wallace compared children's fear of climate change with the threat of nuclear annihilation in the 70s and 80s and requested full funding for chaplains in every school to help ease concerns. Assistant Youth Minister Luke Howarth has backed the call to expand the program in comments to Guardian Australia, saying climate activism is alarmist and does cause mental health problems for young people that could be helped by chaplains. Sorry, what was it Christopher Hitchens used to say? No child's behind left? Yeah. No child's behind left. Big American thing, no child left behind. Yeah. Yeah, no child's behind left yes. unattended. Yes. So moderate liberals interpret the push as preparation for increased funding to appease conservative party room members in the event the religious discrimination bill is stripped back. So, uh, so that's we haven't got to Madison Cawthorn yet, but and also the whole off. Seven Mountains. Yes. And the very much training, correct of the youth. Into getting them into government. Yes, and the seeding of them. So so one of the judges in the Roe v. Wade was uh, Amy Coney Barrett, and I was listening to this podcast, Opening Arguments, and I think it said something like, she was conceived in a petri dish and nurtured in a test tube by hard-right religious conservative forces. So what, what happened previously was conservative presidents, I think Reagan and others, appointed judges who they thought were going to be quite conservative and right-wing. And then when they got into the court, turned out to be rather leftish. Mm-hmm. And, and this just outraged the Christians. So they created a thing like the Federalist Society so that they could really knuckle down and study people and vet them and not get this sort of thing happening again. So... They keep incredibly close tabs on their potential judicial Supreme Court nominees and watch them closely to make sure that they are absolutely online with what they want. And also make sure that politician staffers are Mm. young evangelicals. Yes, yes. So just on the, the Federalists who are in relation to the judicial sort of system... So so it's evolved into a de facto gatekeeper for right-of-centre lawyers aspiring to government jobs and federalist judgeships under Republican presidents. So it vetted President Trump's list of potential US Supreme Court nominees. And as of March 2020, 43 out of 51 of President Trump's appellate court nominees were current or former members of the Federalist Society. So... 43 out of 51 were members of the Federalists. And of the current Supreme Court, of the nine members, six of them are current or former members of the Federalists. So this is all part of this dominionism idea where they work hard to put people 
seed them as youngsters in positions and, and if you seed enough of them, eventually the, the guys you've put in, some of them will rise to the top. So, so yeah, founded in 1982, the Federalists, and they play a long game. Here we are, 40 years later, six of the members of the Supreme Court, Federalists, and they now will just overturn Roe v. Wade. It seems all absolutely certain that that's what's going to happen. And this is the long game that religious groups play. And they've been doing that in America. And, and they're doing that here in Australia. Not so much, to my knowledge, in relation to the judiciary, but certainly in relation to, to politics. So... I mentioned before that Crikey has been doing great work in terms of looking at the Christian credentials of our political leaders. And there's a guy, David Hardacre, in Crikey, who's been doing um, a lot of investigations as to the sort of Christian origins of a lot of people. So in this article from him in Crikey, he says... We know of Prime Minister Scott Morrison's Pentecostal brothers in the government, Brother Stewie, that's Stuart Robert, and Brother Matt, which is Matt O'Sullivan. What about Sister Anne? Dr Anne Webster, a National Party MP from Victoria, elected in 2019, has the plum role of Chair of the Parliament's Joint Committee on Human Rights, which is set to examine the government's contentious religious discrimination bill. As chance would have it, Webster, this is Anne Webster, is a product of the Christian politician factory known as the Lachlan Macquarie Institute. In her first speech to Parliament, she paid tribute to her local pastors in Mildura. She's a self-described vibrant, or the church she went to was Diggerland Church, a self-described vibrant Pentecostal church. So Dr Anne Webster, a product of the Lachlan Macquarie Institute, and she's the head of the Human Rights Committee that will be examining the Religious Discrimination Bill. And again, according to Crikey, the fine print of Webster's CV reveals that she graduated from Lachlan Macquarie Institute training course in 2011. And Crikey describes it as a secretive institute that works hand-in-hand with the Australian Christian Lobby and wants stronger religious freedom guarantees in the Morrison government's legislation. Uh, a key figure in Lock Macquarie is influential Christian businessman Tony McClellan. He's emeritus chairman of the ACL. Two other directors of Lock Macquarie, James Wallace and David Burr, are also directors of the ACL. And the Institute's objective is to prepare Christian men and women for political and cultural leadership what it calls wise leaders. It runs training programs jointly developed by the Lachlan Macquarie Institute and the ACL, the most sophisticated being a 14-week course aimed at producing leaders in politics and public service. The course costs $30,000 with a Lachlan Macquarie scholarship meeting $26,000 of that and it offers unparalleled access to Christian leaders, experts and influencers. And... If you get the show notes, you'll get some information about who else is from the Lachlan Macquarie Institute, including Martin Isles, funnily enough. Who would have guessed? So so that's in relation to sort of political operatives emanating from the Lachlan Macquarie Institute. 
And I was talking before about the Federalists supplying the judges for the Supreme Court in the US, and that is the long game that these people are able to play and the money they've got. Yeah, unfortunately, our judges aren't as political as the US. Correct. Nowhere near as political. So so we've escaped that so far. Mm-hmm. And But I know that there's whisperings where they would like to start sure. making more political uh, appointments. Yep. And, of course, as I've argued before, the problem with the Bill of Rights is that a Bill of Rights is necessarily vague mm-hmm. in its terminology. And, and decided by the judges rather than the lawmakers. Correct. So there is a risk to a Bill of Rights. We don't have one. So in terms of the energies of of the religious right in Australia, there's not a lot of point in working extremely hard in this area because there just isn't a Bill of Rights that committed... That they can skew. Correct, yeah. So, so we're fortunate at the moment that our judiciary, I think, hasn't been tainted by that as yet, but... Keep watching the space. Okay. In the chat room, you guys are going off. Julia's there and Alison as well. So Discussing Luke Howarth. Yes. Luke Howarth's wife used to be a director of Script Union Queensland. He's up to his eyeballs in chaplaincy. Ah. So, okay. So that was that part on the religious discrimination bill. I've got a link to an article by Luke Beck who talks about the bill itself and a bit more about the nuts and bolts. Really, this all comes about in response to the marriage equality debate. Mm-hmm. When that was lost, basically Morrison, I think it was, announced a review by, to be led by Philip Ruddock that was to keep the religious nutters happy. Like, sorry, you've lost on this marriage equality. I tell you what, we'll do a review into religious freedom. Here's Philip Ruddock. He can run around the country. He'll find all the instances of of a people's religious freedom being contravened. Because he was a Christian, wasn't he? Yes, yeah. of course. And and then, you know, we'll have an inquiry and we'll see what comes from that. Of course, Ruddock's findings were that, in fact, he couldn't really find any significant instance of... Places where people religious being, freedom was impinged. That's right, or discrimination against mm-hmm. people because of their religion. But just in case, let's create a bill anyway. Created a bill and, of course... One of the things in it was children in a religious school could be refused enrolment based on their sexuality, sexual mm-hmm. gender or whatever. And people were up in arms and were like, what? And yeah, and then can... and Morrison said, well, it's always been the law. And people said, well, if that's always been the law, it shouldn't be. Like it sort of backfired at that point. So they can stop you joining a school mm. because of your sexuality, but once you're in the school, they can't kick you out because of your sexuality. Who knows? I'm not sure. On the third draft, I'm not sure what what they're allowed to do in relation to children. You know, one of the things is, and actually Luke says here in his article, perhaps the most controversial aspect of the bill is the statements of belief provision. Mm-hmm. So this is the bit where you can say nasty things about people provided it's a statement of belief. Like you could say to a co-worker, you're a woman and you're in charge of this section? That shouldn't be the case under God's holy reign, mm. something like that. I actually don't think that's the worst part. Like for me, the worst part that, and the part I always talk about is the ability to discriminate against teachers and the fact that you can hire and fire teachers based on their religion in a well, private school. I, I think the fact that any religious institution mm. is 
given the power of belief as if it was an entity, which it isn't. Yes, yes, that they can have an ethos, yes. a religious ethos as an institution. And, 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 you know, a school possibly, but a hospital. Yep. And, and what they're saying is provided you have a written policy that says you hire and fire based on religious belief, then that's okay. But, you know... It's a bad idea. It doesn't get whitewashed just because you've written a policy and publicised it. If the policy said we don't hire people because they're black, you wouldn't say, oh, that's okay then because it's a written policy. So to me, I, I just... Well, particularly I, I when see. how much, how many, what percentage of schools are religious? I don't know, but I think nearly 50% of high school students are now educated in private Mostly religious schools, so yeah, it's nearly so, half. So, so it would be forty-five percent of teaching roles. Yeah. Yes. Are in religious schools. That's right. As a physics teacher, you're, you know, as a gay or a satanic physics teacher, yep. your employment prospects are halved through discrimination mm -hmm. that is deemed lawful, and that to me is the one that's the big one. Well, no, no. I mean, the concern mm. for me is actually public health mm. and aged care. I mean, yeah, religion is bad. Uh, sorry, education is bad. Mm. But the idea that if I go to a hospital, I could be denied a medical procedure purely on the grounds of it being against somebody's religion or mm. even the institution's religious ethos. It's not even the provider. So some of that stuff was abandoned in terms of pharmacies not providing stuff due to religious belief. Um, pharmacies, yes, but yeah. hospitals? I don't know. I haven't gone through the detail. Of right. It. So anyway, can of worms, horrible stuff in there. Absolutely. The sort of the Falau clause is gone but is back there in a, in a smaller way in relation to qualifying bodies like a medical board. And Luke goes into the constitutional concerns that we spoke about earlier. So I've got this one here from news.com. In a statement, Attorney General Michaela Cash's office stressed that any decision to preference heterosexual applicants over gay applicants would need to be done under the guise of religious views, not purely sexual orientation. So importantly, the Religious Discrimination Bill does not enable religious schools to discriminate on the basis of a protected attribute such as gender, age or sexual orientation. So you would rely on religion rather than that. Anyway. Um, yeah, so they would be in a non-biblically ordained relationship. Yes, and therefore, sorry, can't come in. Why would you want to go to one of those schools anyway? Anyway. Because otherwise you've halved your employment prospects. Yes, that's right, if you want to be a teacher. <laughs> Labor, what's their response? Well, looks like they're going to capitulate. Of course they will. Anthony Albanese is backing the bill, saying he personally knew of no example where a LGBTIQ teacher had to leave their job, which hasn't, hasn't looked hard enough. I was going to say, surely the SAC teachers should then write to him and let him know. Indeed, yep. So Crikey has a link to a classic example and scratches its head why Albanese wasn't aware of it. Meanwhile, also, Christina Keneally, mm -hmm. Labor leader in the Senate. Catholic. Mm. She says religious schools should be able to choose all of their staff based on religion. Got a link to an article from Out in Perth where she says religious-based schools should be able to make choices about all their staff members. 
arguing that all employees of a religious school play a part in creating the community of those institutions. She outlined her view while speaking in an online seminar with conservative group Family Voice Australia. And this is quoting Keneally here. It's a community of faith and values. Whether it's the sports coach that leads prayers before you go out on the basketball court, whether it's the homeroom teacher or the classroom teacher who has to take children to liturgy, whether it's staying after school to supervise sacramental preparation, all of those aspects, even the values you live out and profess while you are interacting with people, all of those things are inherent in the job, Senator Keneally said. The sports coach that leads prayers before you go out onto the basketball court. For fuck's sake. Like, this is the classic example I gave last time we were talking about this. I was talking about a basketball team. It's it's not unfair to demand a six foot eight. Surely the chaplain comes out and prays with the kids. If they have to pray. Honestly, it just. And, um, and yeah, I agree, Ross. The big problem with this is the taxpayer is funding them. Yeah. It's just outrageous. And this Christina Keneally. Because, yeah, it wouldn't be 45% of teaching jobs. It wouldn't be 45% of the population mm. if it wasn't funded by taxpayers. Yes. If this was purely those people that were so committed to getting a religious education. Yep. The, the problem is we've pulled funding from the state schools. Mm. We're propping up private schools. Mm. And so the state schools are left with the kids, the, the dropouts, the, the kids that are left behind. And you've effectively got a self, self yeah, propping up system where everyone's now going, well, if I can afford it, I'm going to send my child to private school just because better outcomes. Mm. And, and mm. yeah, the, the, well, the figures don't actually show that. Correct. Yep, but they but there's that, a mentality of but that. But that's yep. yeah, that, that's the idea, and it's 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 our own version of gun control. It's yeah, the, absolutely. Yep, and effectively, if you had to really reach into your own pocket and pay for it, mm. I think that choice would be a lot different. Yeah, just just appalling from Christina Keneally, and that's whatever happened to workers' rights for the Labor Party? We've got a numbskull. Catholic nutter like Keneally saying, well, we don't care about teachers and their employment. Like, they can lose half, 50% of their options. Don't give us stuff. Just disgusting. Well, no, no, but she cares about religious teachers. Yeah. Just not the non-religious teachers. Well, the ethos of of it. I just... There we go. I mean... We're just in such trouble because these goddamn people are so powerful. They've got all these institutions and groups creating Christina Keneally's that even infiltrate. Even I it's take, quite everything, reasonable. Everything as is premier. infiltrated. Everything is mm, infiltrated. Absolutely. Yep. And, and I think it was better when the Catholics and Protestants were at each other's throats mm. because then they supported secularism. Yes, that's right. Yep. Yep. That was the reason why. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What can you say? Ah, oh, dear. Well, I can. The only thing I can say is, 
Long live the rise of the Muslim faith. Mm. Because it might scare them off. Because it might scare them off and they might suddenly embrace secularism again. Yes. Or the rise of Satanism. Still waiting on our court case, dear listener. It's coming up to four months now. I'm starting to, I'm starting to like material. No, <laughs> I've got no chance. But anyway, at some stage, we'll get an answer on that. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I heard. Who was it now? Somebody being de- oh, um, who's who's the centre for public Christianity? John Dixon. Yes. Being disparaging of the temple. Yes, he has in the past. Yeah, says it's a joke. Saying uh, it's a joke. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, and you know, would um, that be uh, an offence under the Religious Freedom Bill? Well, it's a firmly held belief on his part. Well, so, yeah. Anyway, did I mention about uh, the Sydney Festival? I think I might have. I remember. In end of January, there's a Sydney festival. Oh yes, you and did. your your friend has got us a spot. Captain Tanya. Yes, so I might be speaking at that event at this stage. So, yeah, I hadn't remembered that. Even IVF discrimination, in vitro fertilisation discrimination is possible. So, religious discrimination laws will allow women who need IVF or surrogacy to be refused employment or harassed in their jobs by religious bodies, including the Catholic Church which oppose such medical procedures. Well, of course, it's not just the creation of life. Mm. The problem is they have more embryos than they need Mm. and they destroy embryos. Correct. So it's against the Catholic teaching, that process. So you're not a good Catholic if you do that. And if you're not a good Catholic, then we don't want to employ you anymore. Did you ever see the web series called, I think it was Guardian Angel? No. It's an Australian web series, short oh. five-minute episode. The title like that, I was unlikely to watch it. Oh, no, it's hilarious. The premise of the story is a guy and his girlfriend have sex. She runs off. He runs off to buy her the morning after pill. Right. A, a Catholic guardian angel appears and oh. says, you've condemned her to hell. Right. Uh, and to make up so that you redeem her for this, this life that you've taken, mm. you have to go and knock up a whole bunch of women. Oh, I see. As a sort of a balancing of the scales. As right. a balancing of the scales. Right, yep, yep. So anyway, there's a link here to an article about this IVF according to this fertility lawyer, Stephen Page, who is a self-described Christian, and he says, if you need IVF, good luck if you're employed by the Catholic Church because the Church has said it is opposed to IVF on the grounds that if an embryo is discarded, that is the killing of life. There we go. Python. Yeah. Every sperm is sacred. Yes, I'd play it in the end. What else have we got here? The Victorians were looking, Daniel Andrews, at passing a bill to stop this discrimination in relation to teachers. So they'll possibly be the ones to do a high court challenge if there is one. And they give the... Dictator Dan. Yes, Dictator Dan, indeed. So they give this example... Rachel Colvin is a committed Christian who was effectively forced to resign from her job at Ballarat Christian College in 2019 after refusing to sign the school statement of faith that declared marriage can only be between a male and a woman. Ms Colvin has a husband and she has three children and she grew up in an evangelical Christian household and has been a missionary. And she'd taught happily at the college for 11 years, but in the wake of the marriage equality debate, 
the school sought to firm up its position on issues such as marriage and homosexuality. And so this woman said, when I read this, I was immediately concerned. I knew that this didn't align with my Christian beliefs. I believe God loves us all. She offered to teach that the school had one view about marriage, but there are other Christian views. I was hoping we could agree to disagree. But one morning she was called into a meeting and asked to resign. Quote, it was such a devastating time for me. I truly love my job. I love the students. I worked with a great bunch of people. And after a long standoff, anxious and poor health, she decided to leave the school as requested. So under the Andrews government amendments, Miss Colvin would be better protected from discrimination. So she was a committed Christian. She married three children, grew up in an evangelical household, had been a missionary, been happy in the job for 11 years, and just when they wanted her to make some bullshit statement about homosexual being an abomination or whatever, she drew a line and out you go. What? See you later. Can you imagine a science teacher being mm. told that they have to support a statement that mm. says the earth is 6,000 years old? And mm. Yes. Yeah? Quite possibly. Yep. Why not? Absolutely. Yep. There we go. Meanwhile, New South Wales, same survey that I read about earlier, almost two-thirds of New South Wales voters support voluntary assisted dying. Only 11% oppose. Despite Mr Perrottet and Mr Minns both being opposed to voluntary assisted dying based on their strong Catholic faith, the survey found 42% of voters are not concerned that political leaders hold religious views. I think you need to start getting concerned. Mm. It depends. Mm. Daniel Andrews has strong political, uh, strong religious beliefs. Correct. But, but he's a secularist. Indeed. So, indeed. Be concerned... Because the odds are... That they're not secularists. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Investigate. Yeah. So it shouldn't exclude them just because they are religious, mm-hmm. but they need to show that their faith is private to them and they don't seek to impose it on the rest of us. Yes. Yep. Right. We're up to 914, Joe, and I still haven't got to my Defence of Democracy by Carrick Ryan, and this is probably one where I can just riff on this myself because it was an article that appeared in the rationalists and the point of the article was defending democracy and hey nothing wrong with democracy like obviously it's uh preferable to it's it's the least worst solution we've got indeed but it's the conflation of democracy with capitalism in this article that just annoyed the heck out of me. So I wanted to go to the town. And... I have with democracy mm. is the average person doesn't care about politics, mm. isn't engaged, and they're forced to make a decision mm. every four years. Mm. So our democracies are deeply flawed and are getting more flawed every day, and that's the real issue, Carrick. So anyway, I think I'll keep that one aside. I, I think there's a good argument to be made about media literacy, mm. yep. as in this needs to be part of teaching in school. Yep. Again, my daughter, in theory, has been taught about the, the electoral system over here. Mm. But if I was to ask her today about preferential voting, she wouldn't be able to answer. Mm. Yep, but it's it's and it's more than just the actual voting system. It's it's what is the true 
power behind things. But, so, but even the yeah. idea that mm. you're not wasting your vote by mm. voting for a minor party. Mm. People yeah, don't right. people don't vote for minor parties because mm. they're worried they're going to waste a vote. Mm. And so they end up voting for a party that they don't really support. Mm. Yeah. Because they feel they're forced. They don't understand preferential voting. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to do that next week. And I am going to do it because now that I'm, I've been doing every second week, and I only charge the patrons every second week, I'm starting to run at a loss <laughs> with these subscriptions and all the rest of it. So, so there definitely will be one next week just so I can charge the patrons a buck each and, and help pay for some of these costs here. So there you go. Hey, in the chat room, good on you, everybody in there, for going forward with your messages. That's great. Thank you for that. Shay will be with us next time when we're here. We're just going to get organised. Now, with Shay working, it may be that it's not necessarily always Tuesday, so we'll see what happens. But if you're not following us on the Facebook page, you should, because if, for example, we were going to do it on a different day, I would do some announcement there. So you need to follow or like or whatever the Facebook page, keep track of that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, well, I reckon that's it, Joe. Thanks again for your efforts behind the always fun uh, soundboard there. Thank you. All right, dear listener, talk to you. I'll talk to you next week for sure. I need the money. <laughs> Bye for now. And it's a good note from him. <laughs>